From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Last year's election saw the Greens post their best ever result. Previously, in the lower house, they'd only held the seat of Melbourne. But at the election, they picked up three lower house seats in Queensland and in the Senate, they increased their representation from nine to 12. Although since they've lost Lydia Thorpe, who defected to the crossbench. The Greens, who share the balance of power in the Senate, have been very assertive on a range of issues, including climate policy and Labor's centrepiece housing policy, the proposed $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. The interest from this fund would be used to finance new social and affordable housing. The Greens have joined with the Coalition, however, to oppose the fund to the absolute fury of the government. Max Chandler Mather, who won Griffith, the seat once held by Kevin Rudd a year ago, is the Greens' spokesperson on housing and homelessness. He's been at the centre of the political brawl over the housing fund and he joins us today to talk through the party's position. Max Chandler Mather, your party has historically fought for more social and affordable housing for Australians doing it tough. Why won't the party support this Housing Australia Future Fund? Our criticisms are twofold. The first is that Labor's proposal as it stands Uh, doesn't guarantee a single cent uh, for public and affordable housing, uh, and it does nothing for renters. Now, Labor's proposal is to get $10 billion of public money, uh, and rather than invest it directly in housing, they want to put it on the stock market by the future fund uh, set up by Peter Costello uh, and only spend some of the returns on housing. Now, the problem is that last year the future fund lost 1.2%, so the fund would have lost $120 million Last year, we wouldn't have seen a single cent spent on housing. And our point to the government is that you would not fund schools or hospitals via uh, an uncertain gamble on the stock market. And uh, we're much better off investing money directly in building public and affordable housing every year. And when it comes to renters, we don't think it's right that the government's only offer for renters in its entirety was just over an extra dollar a day via Commonwealth rent assistance and nothing uh, for the five and a half million renters. And so what we've said to the government is we're willing to negotiate in good faith to work out a plan that actually invests money directly every year, building public and affordable housing, and to come to some agreement around a national plan to tackle the rental crisis. But if you hold out, isn't there a risk that if the fund isn't set up, the government won't in fact spend on housing the up to $500 million a year that the fund is supposed to yield? Well, the part of the problem right now is under the government's plan, we may not see a single home built until after 2025. So what they've said is they need to get the money, it needs to go onto the stock market, and then it needs to generate a return. And then they need to go via this complex process to distribute that money to maybe build homes, but off in the future. And so actually, one of our principal concerns is given that the housing crisis is right now, we don't necessarily need a future fund, we need a plan to invest in public and affordable housing now. Our other concern is that what we'd like to see is the government address the fact that they're also discontinuing funding following on from a coalition policy uh, for the 27,000 affordable NRAS homes previously established by the Rudd government. Now, over the next four years, sorry, we're going to see federal funding for those cut 
and we're going to lose 27,000 affordable NRAS homes out of the system. And a lot of those people are just going to be kicked onto the street or into a private rental market they can't afford. So really what we're trying to do is bring the government to the negotiating table and get them to realise that when you know you have millions of renters doing it tough and a shortage of 640,000 social and affordable homes, it's not tenable for a government to uh, come to the table with a plan that may not see a single home built until after 2025. The government may give some concessions, but it does seem pretty set on this fund legislation. Now, we've seen the Greens compromise on other things after talking really tough, particularly um, in the climate area. Are we just seeing the same dance here? Well, uh, what we've, as you've said, we've, we've have proven that in the past we are willing to negotiate in good faith with the government. Our frustration in this instance is the government has yet uh, to offer anything concrete for renters. For instance, we put on the table that the federal government should offer incentives to the states to coordinate a national freeze on rent increases. Now, these are the sort of national rent controls that were pursued and coordinated by a national cabinet during the pandemic. We know that it's a mechanism that can be used. And our frustration on the spending on housing is the government has yet to guarantee an extra single dollar of, of direct investment every year in public and affordable housing. We've made clear that our demands we put on the table, we're willing to go below those demands. Those are our public starting positions. But like any negotiation, we'd like to meet the government halfway. But our frustration at the moment is it doesn't feel like the government uh, is up for doing that. We saw the Prime Minister come out and say he'd be happy to just take this if this bill fails, just take it to the next election. And our point to the government is that's that sounds more like uh, what it feels like at the moment, certainly in public, that they're more interested in turning this into a massive political fight rather than what we've proven in the past, which is that we can come around the table and work something out. Now, just on the rent question, we did see in the budget the government announced a more generous tax treatment for build-to-rent projects. Will this make some difference? It may actually make the problem worse. Uh, so there was a comprehensive study done of build-to-rent projects in Sydney. Now, for the listeners, build-to-rent basically is where a property developer will build, say, an apartment tower, and rather than sell those apartments, those apartments will be put on the private rental market. Uh, now, Mervac uh, uh, conducted a large property developer, conducted a large build-to-rent project in Sydney, and the analysis found that rents in those build-to-rent projects were 20% higher than the average private rent in the surrounding area. And that's because property developers will only build where it is profitable to do so. So uh, in this instance, when it comes to build-to-rent, they will only build where they can charge high enough rent to make a return that they seem viable. And that's why our point to the government is the best form of build to rent is where the government builds public or government owned affordable housing where rents are set at a uh, say 25% of a person's income. Historically, Australia in the 20th century was able to tackle the housing crisis with a large scale investment in public and affordable housing. Handing over more tax concessions to property developers is not only going to not fix the problem, but there's a lot of strong evidence to suggest that it'll actually make it worse. Well, uh, the Greens want a rent freeze. What form should this take? Should it just be a freeze or should it be uh, a limit on rent rises? And couldn't such measures, in fact, be counterproductive by leading to less rental stock being available? So the Greens' proposal is a two-year freeze on rent increases on the property. So 
that is that rents can't go up on that property for the next two years. And after that, we've said that rent increases should be capped uh, at no more than 2% uh, every two years. Uh, now, this is modelled off a lot of countries around the world where, you know, countries like Scotland have enacted freezes on rent increases. Spain has uh, introduced a cap of 3% on rent increases uh, in areas of high rental growth. There is actually very little evidence uh, to suggest that capping rent increases or controlling rents affects the supply. But the other point to make is that if what we've proposed is that you, in conjunction with our uh, rent freeze and uh, ongoing rent caps, the government should in tandem be investing in a large amount of public and affordable housing. Uh, and I think the other broader point to make is that some commentators often, I, I, I would argue from the property developer lobby, will say, well, if we keep rents too low, then we won't build enough houses. And, and to which I say, even if that were true, it's not sustainable to have a housing system that will only build homes where rents start going up. That relies on having people having to suffer economic pain for us to get homes on the ground. And we know from around the world there's a better way to do it. And that better way to do it is controlling private rents and large-scale government investment in public and affordable housing. But surely there isn't enough money available or won't be enough money available for the government to build sufficient housing. And uh, while you you might want controls on uh, private uh, renting, nevertheless, uh, people need the housing even if the price is higher, surely. Well, our point is on the money question. Uh, there is easily enough money in the federal budget. One of the points we've made to the federal government is that the biggest line item uh, in this year's federal budget, for instance, for housing, is the tax concessions for property investors via negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. We had a costing by the Parliamentary Budget Office that found that those tax concessions to property investors are going to, by the end of the next, uh, in the end of the next 10 years, are going to be costing the government over $20 billion a year. They're costing about $16 billion uh, in this federal budget. And we could be putting that money towards a mass scale investment of public and affordable housing instead. Uh, similarly, you know, there's the stage three tax cuts are now going to cost over $311 billion over the next 10 years. There's easily enough funding in the budget. The other big question is around materials and skills. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is paradoxically, and I think this cuts across this argument that uh, rent caps are going to affect supply. What we're seeing at the moment is despite the fact that rents are going through the roof, there is now a decline going on, a big decline going on in the private construction industry, uh, a big one and a big drop off in dwelling approvals. And even the federal budget said private construction activity is going to continue to decline. What that means is that there is an excess skills and construction materials sitting around that the government could actually put to work building public and affordable housing. So there's neither a, a barrier in terms of materials and skills, nor is there a barrier in terms of money to spend uh, on uh public and affordable housing. Well, maybe there's a barrier in terms of regulations to increase the density of houses in the inner rings of the cities. Do you think that the regulation should be changed to allow this to happen? And did you personally oppose such a move in your own electorate? Uh, on the first question, that's a bit of a myth, actually. Often, again, I would say pushed most by the property industry. Uh, there was an analysis done of Sydney for the last, since 2011, the last 10 years. They found that 95% of development applications were approved in Sydney from 2011 uh, until recently. Uh, and actually, if a lot of those development applications, developers didn't follow through and build them. 
And the reason they didn't follow through and build a lot of them, I think about 100,000 dwellings that were approved weren't built by property developers over that period. Now, the reason they didn't build them is because they will only build homes where it is profitable to do so. They will never build more than they think will, say, oversaturate uh, the market or have any effect on their profit margins. That's not the issue. And I would argue is a misdirection away from actually the important focus. And when it comes to medium density um, development, very big supporter of that. Uh, I actually uh, recently was asked to comment on a social housing development in I electorate as I think it's about 64 social housing dwellings in a five-story tower. Uh, and I wrote, not only did I support it, I went out of my way and wrote a letter of support for it to help it make sure it got off the ground. So no, where I have pushed back uh, on development in electorate is that a property developer wanted to build a large development in a council-designated floodplain. And our point to the federal government on that was the government should buy back that site and turn the portions of it that are at major flood risk into parkland and the areas that aren't at major risk of flooding should be converted into public and affordable housing. On the broader planning question, there is often a false choice presented often again by developers between urban sprawl uh, and say 20, 30 storey towers. Uh, I, 2019, because I'm a massive housing nerd, I visited Vienna just before the pandemic. That city has a population density three or four times higher than a lot of capital cities in Australia. But their planning regulations set dwellings at no higher than five storeys, but they've spread it out across the city and integrated into that is good public transport connections. A lot of because the housing, 60% of housing in Vienna is either rent controlled or a form of social housing. A lot of it is built to a really high standard, which means that there's childcare centres in embedded in a lot bottom of them, rooftop gardens, public parkland is distributed effectively across the city, as well as public infrastructure like schools public libraries and things like that. Our point is that we can have um, denser cities done in a way that provides public and affordable housing, but also integrates public transport and other crucial bits of public infrastructure. And the way our cities have been built in Australia is either via this destructive urban sprawl or where property developers will come and dump an unaffordable 20-storey tower in an area, but then not pay anything nearly enough towards the public infrastructure we need or provide a proportion of it as public and affordable housing. I think we need a much better nuance in our public debate around the way we talk about urban planning and building in Australia, because it's been done so much better around the world with better population density, more sustainably, and uh, in a way that improves everyone's lives, not just the profit margins of property developers. I do note in this debate, people have been uh, distinguishing between the NIMBYs, not in my backyard, and, and the YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard. Uh, do you identify with either camp? No, I don't. And I think partly because I think it's, a, um, it's, a, uh, it's an incorrect way to view the housing debate in Australia. And it boils down to the idea that the only way to fix the housing crisis is via supply. It's really important to note that Sydney Uni economist Cameron Murray has done a lot of great work on this. He's an expert in housing economics. Uh, and he's pointed out that right now Australia is building more homes per thousand people than we ever have in our history. Uh, and in fact, over the last five years, Australia built over a million homes and we're in the middle of the worst housing crisis we've seen in generations. And what I am, I suppose, is a yes to large scale investment in medium density, good quality, public and affordable housing. Uh, yes to phasing out negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. Uh, and yes to uh, private controls, controls on private rents, because those are the policies that have worked 
across the world to get really high quality, good homes, homes that are made available, not just to the worst off, but to the teachers, nurses and workers and other people who um, need rent subsidized homes. And I also uh, am uh, sympathetic towards those policies are supportive because they've worked in Australia before as well. Uh, Australia used to build so much more public housing and that housing, a lot of maybe some of your listeners grew up in housing commission, uh, but uh, it used to be homes built for workers as well. Uh, and, you know, even Robert Menzies, of all people, used to get up in Parliament and brag about how many public homes the federal government was building. And this was in conjunction where uh, previously the federal government had coordinated controls on rents up until relatively recent. Historically speaking, a lot of states did have controls on private rents uh, and it worked really well. And instead, what we've seen since the 90s is a domination of housing policy by banks and lobbyists for property developers who conveniently always find the solution in giving relaxing regulations on them to the point that they're allowed to build whatever they want. And that might be good for their profit margins, but it's not good for the people who need affordable homes. Some of that public housing, incidentally, ended up in a pretty bad state. Mm. It didn't age well over the decades. Yeah, I mean, I I think this really does come down to a big shift in public policy that occurred in about the 1990s. And in that period, you saw two things happen. One, you saw a substantial amount of financial deregulation and governments at both state and federal level exiting the role that they used to play in terms of a large-scale provision of public and affordable housing. And what that meant is they also stopped renewing stock. uh, And also what they meant was they kept restricting um, the social groups that were eligible for that public and affordable housing. And in, as a result, concentrating disadvantage in areas. It used to be that, you know, if you're a steel, a manufacturer, a steelmaker, or even a teacher or a nurse, you could get into one of these homes. And that created diverse neighbourhoods with mixed incomes and really successful housing developments. But what the governments did in about that period was shift their policy to say, well, we're not going to spend nearly as much as we used to building housing. We're going to let it leave it up to the private market. And where we are going to build housing, we'll only build it for the people on the lowest incomes and in the worst situations. And what that did is create increasingly a housing system that does concentrate disadvantage uh, and doesn't provide good subsidised homes uh, to people even on middle incomes, which, by the way, in the 20th century was crucial to increasing rates of home ownership because the government also sold cheap homes to people. And these days, there's a lot of people that could get into the housing home ownership ladder if the government adopted the sort of policies that uh, both Labor and Liberal governments had during the 20th century. The housing debate and the immigration debate have inevitably uh, become interlinked here in recent times. What do you think about the 1.5 million projected net immigration over the next five years? Is that sustainable? I think it is, although I think that it does highlight the need for the government to take a much proactive role again in a mass build of public and affordable housing. Uh, migration has always made this country, you know, and I speak to a lot of people in my line of work, um, people in small businesses and, you know, even aged care facilities or, or, or schools or, or all sorts of areas that need skilled labour that say that there's a shortage in Australia at the moment. And so it makes sense that we invite people in this country to set up their lives here. But really, as always in Australia, often it's not a question of enough resources. It's a question of how those resources are distributed. Uh, And I hate to sound like a broken record, but again, we could be much better for fairly taxing large corporations in this country and using that wealth to build the public infrastructure, transport and housing that we need to house and house more people in our communities. Uh, And 
I think often when the migration debate appears, it often distracts, I think, from the far more important debate, which is how we distribute resources fairly in this country. And that does mean, I think, the government scrapping those stage three tax cuts and using that money for the public infrastructure and housing that we need. And it also means more fairly taxing corporations. And the more we focus on the migration debate, the more we let those big corporations and the um, super wealthy off scot-free. Just finally, in this row over the housing fund, you've come in for some heavy flack from senior members of the government. Penny Wong last week accused you of caring more about the media spotlight than women and children fleeing domestic violence. Anthony Albanese has accused you of hypocrisy because of that uh, development in your own electorate. How are you coping with uh, really being in the heat of battle, as it were, especially as you've only been in Parliament uh, almost less than a year? Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, yeah, it, it can be occasionally, frankly, it can feel a bit weird um, going from just spending all your the campaign, just knocking on doors and chatting to people to this situation. Uh, the first thing to say is I always find when um, people in public life resort to sort of personal attacks, it means they've actually uh, lost the public policy debate and they are almost tacitly admitting that uh, we're right when it comes to the policy positions we're putting forward. And so I, while I think it's unfortunate that they would resort to those sort of personal attacks, I think it's a useful sign that maybe the government need to admit that actually our point that guaranteeing spending on public and affordable housing and rent controls is a good thing to do. The second thing to do is it is a frust it is a great frustration and it's why I think part of the people don't like politics at the moment for for instance uh, a government senior government minister to suggest that uh, you know make that reference to um, domestic violence housing when our very point about labor's housing future fund bill is that it makes people in desperate need of housing whoever they are rely on uncertain returns on the stock market when the federal government could just stump up the cash right now to build the housing for the people that need it right now. Uh, and what I've observed with these sort of personal attacks is that partly a desire to really try and defend myself, but I know the more I spend time talking about that, the less time I have a chance to talk about the millions of people in this country who are in desperate need of a home, sleeping in their cars or, or doing it rough at the moment. And um, the more we focus on them and the less we focus on petty personal insults, I think the better we all are. Max Chandler Mather, thank you very much for talking with us today about the uh, Housing Fund and uh, related issues. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.